the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Seamus Coffey, chairman of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, about his claim that the government's medium-term spending plans are not credible. Seamus joined me in studio to discuss his view of the economy and the impact that a no-deal Brexit might have on Ireland. But first, Peter Hampton joins me in studio to run through some of the major business stories of the week. Uh, Peter, you're very welcome. Thanks, Kieran. We're going to start with aviation and Ryanair and its plans for Malta. That's right. It confirmed that it's going to buy Malta Air, uh, a startup airline. Uh, and the move is expected to open more non-EU markets to the Irish airline. It'll give it... Well, first of all, it'll give it a Maltese Air Operator Certificate. That's effectively a licence. Uh, and it'll give it th- that access to markets in North Africa. So the deal is expected to complete by uh, the end of June. And the company plans to switch six aircraft onto the country's register. And they'll increase that to 10 in three years. Yeah. Uh, so is this a move to sort of get around labour restrictions maybe in certain markets or to pay less tax? Because Malta has a reputation as being a low tax jurisdiction. Well, certainly for the employees, uh, employees will be shifted to the base, the Malta base, mm. um, and they will pay their personal taxes there. So uh, absolutely, as you say, getting around those those labour restrictions will be an outcome of this, whether it was uh, Reiner's stated goal at the beginning, we don't know, but it, it will mm. be an outcome. Um, and it'll also restructure the group into into a more IAG type structure. IAG, of course, the owner of Aer Lingus. Uh, so because it's worth noting, Ryanair now also owns Loud Emotion in Austria and Buzz, which flies out of Poland. So it's becoming this uh, bigger group, uh, if you like, much different to what it was when Michael O'Leary was first on the scene. Uh, and while we're on that that first on the scene bit, um, the airport where Ryanair departed from for its first ever flight, Waterford Airport, yeah. uh, which has been been without uh, commercial flights some for taxpayer three. cash yeah it's getting well it's going to get 5 million it's been out without uh, a commercial flight for 3 years now when VLM stopped flying there in 2016 so it's looking to lengthen its runway because up to now it could only take smaller turboprop planes it's looking to get bigger planes um, the move will cost about 12 million they have local investors who will stump up 5 million uh, and 7 million no? so, well 5 million from local investors and 2 million from local authorities okay. including 7 million locally so, 7, yeah exactly 7 million locally some of the companies getting involved there Dawn Meats and Glanbia and of course as you mentioned there the taxpayer uh, will be on the hook for 5 million uh, once it's completed and once the Irish Aviation Authority have certified the runway is good to go Okay. All right, we're going to switch to Germany now, where Primark, which is the the international brand uh, used by pennies, they use pennies in Ireland, Primark overseas, uh, and it's under fire uh, as a result of a new report which is published and which has flagged um, that certain uh, employment practices, shall we say, in some of its suppliers uh, might not be up to scratch. That's right. In Sri Lanka, uh, the report suggests that employees of six named supplier factories to Primark had longer working weeks and lower minimum wages than the country allows in the first place. Uh, So the the report is by the Christian Initiative Romero, and it says it interviewed 73 Sri Lankan employees with an average working week of 59 hours and with some of them working for as little as €73 a week. Uh, It's worth noting then that Sri Lanka has a work hour ceiling of 57 hours, so two hours less than than those employees interviewed, and a minimum wage of €79 a month in the garment industry, so €6 above 
uh, what what these employees mm, mind were you, seventy nine euro a month. I mean, certainly looking at it from the west, it's a pretty miserable sum of money, isn't it? It's it's pretty shocking, all right. Yeah, yeah. And to see that these people were being paid less than that, uh, even more so. Um, and and the problems didn't stop there. It wasn't just with those those working practices. Of one supplier, the report found that four of the eight employees interviewed complained of skin problems uh, because of the use of of chemicals. And they also found that some suppliers had a restroom for tired or sick employees, while others had a doctor on site yeah. in the factory. You know, Penny's Primark is fifty years old this week, and there are plans for to picket some of these shops in Germany. That's right. Uh, there, there is going to be a protest, and and I suppose it's worth noting uh, what Primark Pennies had to mm. say on this. They said that they only source from three of the six factories mentioned in the report, um, but it noted that it, it will not tolerate unapproved subcontracting, and they said that they're going to fully investigate the claims here. Okay, Peter, and finally, uh, the government recently appointed Gabriel uh, McClough. Uh, from who's leading the Treasury Department in New Zealand as the new governor of the Central Bank of Ireland. He's due to take up the role in September, but he's been engulfed in some controversy there over the past couple of weeks. Tell us about that. That's right. He claimed publicly in New Zealand that the country's treasury systems had been hacked. Uh, but advice to his department from the government's cybersecurity bureau said that no such hack occurred. But he called in the police to find the hack. And it, it, it actually, what what appeared to be the case was that there was a leak, but not not a hack. Yeah. Um, so, so it was an accidental leak. They put some budget material, sensitive budget material on a website. website. They're saying a shadow website. And unbeknownst to them, by doing a, a search for budget material on their main website, all of this material uh, popped up. So the opposition parties had a field day on this and said that this is a very serious matter and essentially he should be fired along with the finance minister. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and so, so he, he claimed that there was a second. It, it transpired there wasn't. So he's facing this inquiry now uh, in light of that in his final weeks as the senior official in the finance ministry. So this is, I suppose, put a question over... It's embarrassing. Uh, it's embarrassing as he come comes. here and as look, an outsider to be the first outsider to lead the Central Bank of Ireland. And it was an expensive process. Uh, minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, uh, well, the, the department rather, paid about more, more than €70,000 to mark partners to, to mm. appoint a new governor. It's a very important position. And with that in mind, Labour's finance spokeswoman Joan Burton today called for his appointment to be paused until the outcome of the New Zealand inquiry comes to light. It hasn't been the first call for the, for the process to be... Uh, or for, 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 for some action to be taken by the Department of mm. Finance. So what's but, the Minister Pascal Dunham been well, saying? Well, he's... First of all, he said he's not going to comment on a process underway in another country. And he stressed that this appointment has already been made and only very, very grave misconduct, in his words, would allow the government to change his mind. All right. And that story will play out over the coming weeks, I'm sure. Peter, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Seamus Coffey of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council about his criticisms of the state's medium-term spending plans. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. 
Welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and other platforms, and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, earlier this week, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council published its latest assessment of the economy and the government's spending plans. In a hard-hitting critique, IFAC said the Department of Finance's medium-term spending plans were not credible. It also warned against relying on corporation tax receipts into the future and said excess funds from this tax heading should be placed into a prudence account for a rainy day. Now, I'm delighted to be joined in studio by IFAC Chairman Seamus Coffey, a UCC economist as well. Uh, Seamus, tell us why you're so concerned about the government's uh, medium-term spending plans being uh, not credible. Uh, it's quite, quite, quite strong words. Yeah, so we're looking for, in this instance, we're looking for the years out beyond uh, 2020. So the, the hmm. department have published figures for the years 2021 to 2023. Um, and they actually show uh, very large surpluses out to 2023. So they show tax revenue coming in and um, basically a, a huge chunk of it hasn't been uh, committed to spending. So the, the, the spending growth uh, slows dramatically uh, out, out in the later years. So spending it currently is growing in year-on-year terms at almost 8%. But if you look at the, the medium-term plan that the government has set out, um, it shows spending growing at just 2.5%. So it looks like there's set to be a massive slowdown uh, in spending growth over the coming years. But that isn't going to happen. Like This is just a technical assumption. They've put in a figure of 2.5%. It doesn't reflect policy. It doesn't reflect what's going to happen. So we don't have uh, a good picture uh, of what we potentially do face over the medium term. And we do need to have better grounded uh, projections uh, from the government. Our budget is very much based on an annual um, pattern. And even within year, we're seeing changes uh, within that. So you could almost say it's month to month. We do need to take a more medium and long term view uh, of the polyfinance. It happens in, in, in many countries where they don't have this uh, sort of annual dash to change things um, each year. Uh, and do set out plans over a two, three, or four-year period. And that's something that we should be looking to move to in this country. Yeah. Now, Charlie McCreevy was a great man when he was Minister for Finance, uh, of ramping up spending uh, prior to uh, elections and then pulling it back uh, dramatically uh, in the period after elections. Maybe Pascal Donoghue has something like that in mind. Well, we don't know when the the next election uh, is set to be, but this has been a recurring feature of the plans published over the last number of years. So it's not just as we're, we're getting close to an election. And this is something we've said repeatedly. Uh, it's perhaps getting more prominence now, uh, which, is, which is good from our perspective. Um, but these plans have lacked this sort of credibility for a number of years. The last time we had actually a, a credible set of uh, fiscal forecasts set out would be back during the, the Troika period. Um, when we had to bring a huge budget deficit down um, and the uh, forecast actually reflected what the government intended to do. Now, it didn't set out the policies that we're going to implement in each year uh, to actually bring the budget deficit down, but it did actually set out the targets uh, and what they intended to do and bring the deficit down to 3%. So those were realistic uh, revenue and spending forecasts um, immaterial of whether we knew how they were going to achieve it. What we have now is just a set of technical assumptions that don't really reflect what's going to happen at all. So in your opinion, Seamus, is spending under control? So spending has ramped up over the last number of years, and particularly the growth of spending has, has increased. Uh, so once we ended through the year of austerity, this was in 2014, 2015, um, spending growth was zero, but it has increased. Uh, it's gone through 4% in, in 2017 and hit for 6% in uh, 2018, as we said, thus far this year. Uh, it's growing at 8% in year-on-year terms. So there has been an acceleration uh, in spending. Some of that has been planned, so you have increases in capital spending, uh, but a large share have been unplanned, 
uh, particularly when it comes to areas such as health, where a budget is set out at the start of the year and we get very, very significant overruns. Uh, and overruns in areas like health are a bit different to overruns in capital spending. Like we, we do focus on, on overruns and estimates when it comes to things like the Children's Hospital and the National Broadband Plan, but they're generally one-off. Uh, when you have ongoing and recurring overruns uh, in the provision of health services, the overrun this year gets built into the base for next year. So if you have a five or six hundred million overrun this year, that could lead to seven or eight hundred million of additional spending next year, and then you're putting more growth on top of that. Um, so the spending growth has increased over, re- over recent years, and it's now maybe approaching levels of spending growth we've last seen in the mid-2000s. And again, our concern would be uh, perhaps similar to the mid-2000s, that spending per se is fine, but is it being funded by sustainable revenue sources? And for the last number of years, of course, huge money has been coming from corporation tax. Yeah, it has. Yeah, in the top 10 billion euro last year. Not sure where it's going to land this year, but it's been uh, very substantial, most of it coming from the multinational sector. And your argument is that uh, a big chunk of this, uh, an excess, as you call it, should effectively be put in a prudence account for a rainy day. Yeah, so what we've seen over the last number of years is these huge uh, increases in corporation tax, like two billion unforeseen last year, uh, with something similar happening in 2015. But we're seeing no improvement in the in the government's budgetary position. So essentially, as soon as this money is coming in in the form of revenue, it's going out in the form of other commitments, whether it's on the spending side or the tax side. Uh, so even though we have these massive tailwinds behind us, we can look around us and see that the Irish economy is performing quite well. So that in itself is boosting revenue uh, with income tax and VAT performing quite strongly and PRSI actually being one of the, the best performing government revenue sources. We also have benefited from very low interest rates. We still have a pretty significant chunk of debt, around 200 billion, uh, as interest rates are now quite low or benefiting from lower interest rates. But the government's budgetary position uh, hasn't changed much in the last number of years. Mm. So even though we have all these benefits, they are being used. Like, so, for example, last year, we ran pretty much close to a, a balanced budget. Um, that's even with uh, billions of additional corporation tax, billions of savings on uh, interest, uh, and possibly a kind of a temporary boost in the growth rate of revenue from the economy. Uh, so one thing that we'd be concerned with is that we're building up these uh, permanent increases in spending and, and permanent commitments across various areas of government that could potentially be based on temporary growth. And the Irish economy is going to slow down and are very likely to be based uh, on a source of revenue corporation tax that may not be sustainable. Why isn't it sustainable? I suppose one reason is the nature of the increase and the rapid increase we've seen over the last number of years and the fact that we can't really explain it. Like, as you say, a large chunk of it comes from foreign companies. So it's not really based on activity in the domestic economy. Like, it's pretty much based on what these companies are doing abroad, uh, their profitability in, in their in their markets right around the world. Uh, so it is somewhat removed from the Irish economy. So perhaps if there was to be a slowdown in the international economy, even if the Irish economy continues to perform well, there could be a drop in tax revenue, uh, in corporation tax revenue in Ireland. Um, and it could be down to the changes in the international tax environment. So the OECD have been running uh, what they call the base erosion and profit shifting project for the last number of years. Initially, it was thought that would be a threat to Ireland, but actually it looks like we've benefited. Mm. Uh, but now they've moved on to BEPS 2.0, the, the next round of this, uh, and that may be um, where Ireland could lose some tax revenue. So I think the issue is that we can't really be definitive. So the Fiscal Council are, are pointing to risks uh, in being very reliant uh, on this revenue source that has spiked in, in recent years. And it's a huge amount of money. £10 billion is about €2,000. Like for every man, woman and child in the country, like for a, for a family of four, it's €8,000 that by and large is a cheque being written for us by, by foreign companies. Um, so that €2,000 
we're collecting per capita in Ireland compares to France and Germany where it's about a thousand euro in corporation tax. So even though we have a rate much lower than theirs, mm. we're collecting twice as much per capita in corporation tax. Um, of course, they have much larger populations over there. Oh yeah, but like like in the per capita to take that into account, and like they have more businesses, mm. they have more activity, they are collecting more corporation tax. Uh, but even with our lower rate on a per capita basis. And uh, we're collecting a, a, an amount twice what they collect. So what's your view on the growth potential for the Irish economy, let's say, over the next three three to five years? So the outlook for the economy, as we say, is unusually uncertain. Um, we've kind of a mixed view of the economy. There's sort of a central or a, a baseline scenario where, where growth slows down a bit, but uh, still uh, operates at a reasonable rate. Uh, one potential um, risk to the growth scenario is that it actually growth could be higher. Uh, we could get a, a continuation of the very strong growth we've seen for the last five or six what years. What kind of level? Uh, so if, the Irish economy has grown in terms of employment at around 3% per annum for now five or six years. And that's a very strong and rapid rate of growth. That's 60,000, 70,000 additional jobs each year, 1,000 jobs a week that we've been doing now for the last uh, five or six years. One issue with that, that might limit that is, of course, the unemployment rate has now fallen to 4.5%. The availability of workers... Um, is uh, becoming a, an issue unless we can get people into the labour market uh, or get people into the country. But of course, one issue with trying to increase the labour supply through that uh, mechanism is that maybe we have a housing problem that we, we've nowhere to put them. Uh, so that m- might limit growth. But if we were to say start building houses uh, quite rapidly uh, and maybe if uh, residential construction was, was to increase beyond the, the currently projected rates like we see, very large levels of construction activity around Dublin at present, but it's very much in the the commercial sector, whether it's office space or hotels. So I think we're doing about 20,000 housing units a year. Now, that's kind of the run rate, isn't it? Yeah, so that's probably still 10,000 below what we need Mm. just to to maintain um, the the adequate level of housing. And, of course, we've had a decade of not building enough houses. Mm. Uh, So it might be that 30,000 could be what we might call an equilibrium or or steady level that we'd like to be at. But maybe we have to go to 40, 50 or even above that, 60,000 units for a temporary period. Um, And that could lead to an increase in growth, could put pressure on the economy, could lead to overheating pressures with demand for labour and lead to to wage and price pressures. So one reason we think the outlook is unusually uncertain is that there's this possibility of growth actually being higher than forecast, maybe because of, of activity in the residential construction sector where we do need the houses, but do we currently have the space in the economy uh, to actually allow that activity to take place? And then on the other hand, when you're going to say something is unusually uncertain, you must have a downside risk. And of course, the very clear downside risk is the risk of a hard Brexit. Mm. That remains a non-zero risk. It's something that could happen. And it's possible that as things go on with the Conservative Party in the UK, the risk of a hard Brexit gets higher. Um, So that would potentially have quite a negative impact on the Irish economy if disrupted trade relations between Ireland and the UK. And it will obviously have knock-on consequences for the public finances. Sure. Now, uh, Boris Johnson coincidentally launched his uh, Conservative Party leadership campaign today. And while he says he doesn't want a no-deal Brexit, he would like a, a deal with the European Union, he hasn't ruled it out. And he said Britain should be out by October 31st. So that danger does exist. Now, if we were to have a no-deal scenario uh, come the end of October, what would the impact be, the immediate impact be in the Irish economy? So it was to be a, a no-deal Brexit, was the immediate impact would be uh, particularly on trade relations between Ireland and the UK, um, getting goods in and out of the UK, um, whether the UK then becomes um, more open perhaps to, to trade from, from other countries, that we may face competition in getting our products uh, onto UK shelves that we don't currently face. So we sell food, U- products, food products. yeah. Um, whereas currently we operate within a single market in the EU where there are restrictions 
on bringing certain products into the EU. If the UK was to leave, maybe for the UK market, those restrictions no longer apply. So Irish products uh, that would be perhaps at a high value, high cost, might be competing against lower cost um, rivals for, from other countries. So that could have an immediate impact uh, on the Irish economy. And it's likely that um, that rosy growth scenario we set out, talking about maybe increased mm. growth due to housing, could be uh, negatively offset um, due to Brexit. Uh, and both the Central Bank and the ESRI have done uh, analysis of a, a hard Brexit. We've tried to build into that in some of the work we're doing. And it shows a very severe slowdown in growth growth for, for 2019, 2020, essentially slowing to zero. Uh, so that 1,000 jobs a week is no longer happening. We're probably losing jobs in some sectors uh, and gaining some in others. But in overall terms, no growth in, unemplo- in employment. And the government sector uh, not seeing the increase in revenue, a government deficit beginning to open up. So we spent a decade closing the last deficit. We still have a 200 billion debt. If there was to be a severe and a hard Brexit, we could actually begin to threaten some of these EU ceilings for deficits. And that's kind of a technical issue. But one issue would be that if you're going to run a deficit, somebody has to lend to you. So like if we have spending uh, exceeding our income, uh, and particularly if a hard Brexit was somehow coincidental with a drop in corporation tax revenue, we could have pretty severe financing needs. And at present, I would imagine international financial markets barely notice Ireland. Mm. We're tiny. Uh, Our level of debt is big for us as a country, but it's probably just a small spot when it comes to the overall amount of, of government bonds that are out there. And so they might look at something like Ireland's debt-to-GDP ratio, which now is at 60%, would be relatively low, would be um, at, the, at the better end across EU terms. And they might think that Ireland is a, a relatively safe bet. And we see that our lending rates are, uh, or sorry, our borrowing rates are extraordinarily low. Um, but if they were to look at us a bit in more detail and say, well, Irish GDP actually doesn't mean a whole lot. It's inflated by the presence of multinationals. They have their own measure over here, this modified gross national income. Maybe in Ireland we know what it means, but um, bond traders around the world at present mightn't have any idea it exists. But if we started asking for money, mm. they might start looking. And then they said, oh, your debt ratio is over 100%. You have 200 billion of debt. You have a deficit of 3-4% of national income. Uh, and those benign borrowing conditions we have now, when we don't need them, might not actually be there when we do need them. Uh, and that would be the concern that, that a hard Brexit would bring. So uh, I suppose in response to both of those risks, the fact that housing output could shoot up uh, and the possibility of a hard Brexit, um, we actually see that uh, fiscal policy should be cautious. One, to take heat potentially out of an overheating economy. Uh, and two, to have the capacity to respond to a hard Brexit appropriately. So we don't want a hard Brexit to occur and then see us increasing taxes and cutting spending. Yeah. making the thing worse. And that's something we've done for 45 years in Ireland. Pro-cyclical policies, spending money when it comes in during the boom, and then cutting when the crash comes. Uh, one role of the Fiscal Council is hopefully to try and break that cycle. But it's very hard to do. Yeah. Well, actually, on that point, because you were set up post the crash uh, to provide these assessments and to hopefully act as a warning signal, if you like, uh, against another boom-bust uh, type scenario, and you, you have been critical of uh, recent budgets and you've been crit- critical of uh, government policy, but Pascal Donoghue and Fine Gael don't seem to be paying any attention. So some people might ask, well, what's the point uh, of all of this work by the mm-hmm. Fiscal Council when, in fact, the government pays no heed to it? So there's no doubt that our assessment has changed uh, over the past couple of years. You have to go back as far as uh, November 2017 when the government set out their plans for 2018. 
that fiscal assessment report actually got very little coverage because we actually looked at the government's plans. We saw that they were in line with, with prudent budgetary management. The, the government was managing to stay within the, the spending limits that it set for 2017 and seemed to be delivering a, a pretty a reasonable budget for 2018. So if you actually go back and look uh, 18 months ago, uh, you'd see that the Fiscal Council was delivering a pretty benign report. Now, 18 months later, things have changed uh, and things clearly changed during 2018 when there was a complete failure uh, to follow through on the plan set out in budget 2018. Uh, the level of additional spending that happened during 2018 uh, was very, very significant. It happened in the area of health, but also across a number of other areas. So in fact, if you compare the plans that we assess to be good back in at the end of 2017 and what actually happened during 2018, uh, there was a difference of about two billion uh, in the level of spending. So that's something we didn't assess. If we knew that there was going to be additional two spending, our fiscal assessment report of November 2017 would have been very, very different. So we did, uh, in a sense, praise the government back then for showing plans that would have been good. But now once they fail to deliver on them, uh, we're rightly being critical of it. Um, and that's something that we've been um, keeping an eye on for, for 2019. Thus far, it looks like things are uh, reasonably on track. But even from a starting point, uh, there was a pretty high level of spending growth built in. Some of it was funded by, by tax increases. So this year we had the the uh, restoration of the 13.5% rate of, of that for the hospitality sector. But even still, the, the rate of spending growth uh, is quite large and the potential for overruns in health uh, and other areas remain. The government still hasn't uh, set aside money for the, the Christmas bonus for, for social welfare recipients. So that talking about the credibility of fiscal forecast, that's not in the figures. We know it's going to be paid, but they won't put it into the figures until the decision is made to do so. But like, that's just a, a technical issue. So, so that should be put in. Um, so I think that the reasons for, for the criticism have been a failure to deliver on plans uh, for the last number of years. So we hope that corrects itself and that we do have an impact uh, and that the government see that you can't just set out a plan uh, and then ignore it, that there is somebody out there actually observing what you're doing. Uh, and if you do have this slippage, somebody will say uh, and speak out about it. And that's our role. Yeah. Now, Pascal Dunhu likes to present himself as a very prudent finance minister, somebody who's carefully managing the economy and making sure that we're not losing the run of ourselves again. And yet we have these overspends, massive overspends on the Children's Hospital, on uh, the National Broadband Plan. Uh, Irish Water a few years ago was a, a complete fiasco. So does he live up to that billing as prudent, Pascal? I suppose one issue would be that the Minister for Finance is you're just one uh, of 16 ministers uh, in a cabinet and we do have cabinet uh, collective responsibility. So um, it can be quite difficult to assess what's happening across all the various departments. Like there doesn't tend to be overspending in the Department of Finance, which... Of course, it's obviously a very small uh, department and a small spending department. It does tend to happen in the, the large spending departments. And I do think there do, is need for, for greater control and monitoring uh, of the large spending departments. Last year, we were promised that there would be additional reporting and additional monitoring uh, of these, these departments. We haven't really seen it uh, as 2019 has progressed. Uh, so I think it'll be a, a key test this year whether the, the spending plan set out can be adhered to. If there's failure again, uh, I think the... The, the the notion that, that the public finance are being well handled uh, will be dispelled. Yeah. I mean, do you get frustrated that the government doesn't seem to be paying any attention to, to what you're saying? Do you ever feel like throwing your hat at us? Uh, well, it's hard to know what the counterfactual would be. Like, if we weren't here, um, what would be happening? So I think it's pretty clear that we are having an impact. Uh, so we published a report during the week and it has got uh, significant coverage. It's been part of the, the political debate. Uh, so it's, it, and it's hard to see, like, if that didn't happen, what would the outcomes be? Um, but there's no doubt that our view um, is getting out there. And I think we have 
sort of a target audience in the political process, the Minister for Finance and the elected representatives in the Dáil. We also have a broader audience, uh, the general public, uh, because politicians will do what the electorate want. And if they begin to hear uh, issues about the sustainability of the public finances, essentially we don't want to go back to austerity. Uh, if that becomes an issue that politicians hear, even occasionally, uh, it may feed into their uh, decision-making. And, and if we can achieve that, that will be a positive. OK, let's assume we don't have a hard Brexit. Uh, what are the chances of us being in another boom-bust cycle? Because there are some fears out there of some people. They just kind of smell it in the air, especially in Dublin. They look at housing prices. They look at the way some other things have gone, you know, restaurant prices yeah. and, and so forth. Uh, it's become a very expensive city again in a short space of time and rents are, are through the roof now, essentially. So what's your view? Setting aside a hard deal Brexit scenario, let's say we don't have that. Um, are we uh, in boom-bust, potential boom-bust territory? I think there's no doubt that we're at an upward phase of the, the business cycle and things are going quite strongly at present. And there will be a slowdown uh, of the Irish economy. I think that's inevitable. I don't think the risks uh, of a crash uh, are anywhere comparable to what they were back in 2007, 2008. Now it's hindsight. It's easy to look back now. And we can clearly see there were issues with building 90,000 houses a year and dependence on a huge uh, amount of credit being pumped into the economy. Uh, and those are things that can stop very quickly. Like building sites essentially shut down almost overnight in the, in the summer and the autumn of 2008. And of course, the lending stopped uh, almost as quickly when, when the credit crunch came. Um, so they were things that could change uh, very, very rapidly. If you look at the Irish economy now, I don't think you see things that could stop as quickly as that. Like we've gone through a period of deleveraging. In fact, um, credit has been contracting for a decade as households and firms have been have been repaying debt. Uh, and there's the, the possibility that maybe some of that money that has gone to repay debt, once those debts have been cleared, that could be boosted out into the economy and used to, to support demand. Uh, I think the recovery has been relatively broad-based. Yes, the, the foreign multinationals have contributed, but also the domestic economy, tourism, uh, the agri-food sector is doing quite well, uh, indigenous companies, SMEs. So I think it's, it's across a broad range. So in terms of a crash, I think there's probably greater risks in the public finances because of things like corporation tax than there is for the economy as a whole. And if there wasn't to be uh, a crash out Brexit, I think you could well imagine the Irish economy continuing to perform uh, reasonably well over the medium term um, because of the, the broad-based nature of the growth we've had. It's not uh, anywhere near as concentrated as was back in 2006 or 2007. OK, medium term, you're talking about 2023. Yes. All right, OK. Um, and in terms of budget 2020, what would your advice to the Minister be? So our advice is to, to stick to the plans. Once again, we've seen the government set out plans that seem reasonable. So in their, in their latest uh, stability programme update, they, they have plans for 2020 and the advice for the Fiscal Council is to stick to them. Uh, so that would suggest, and it seems to us, to employ uh, about £2.8 uh, of budgetary uh, measures for for 2020, uh, which is quite a significant amount, uh, albeit a lot of that has already been committed, whether it's the increases in, in capital spending, uh, commitments on public sector pay, uh, and the fact that demographic pressures would lead to sort of automatic spending increases in certain areas, more pensioners, uh, maybe pressure on the health and education systems. So of that 2.8 billion, in or around 2 or 2.2 billion has probably been committed. So maybe the minister will have around 600 million uh, available for net measures on budget day. And that's not too different to the plans that were set out last year. Last year, this time last year, they were talking around 800 million. Um, so the plans as set out would seem to imply around 600 million for budget day. 
um, and that the, we, the view of the fiscal council is the government should stick to that. Now, of course, that's a net amount. If they want to increase spending by more or introduce other changes, so for example, you could increase taxes and that would give greater capacity to increase spending. If you want to do even greater tax cuts, you could reduce spending. Mm. Uh, they are choices available to the political process. Um, but the, the package of 2.8 billion, uh, in our view, was something that would um, improve the position of the public finances. Like we could ask for a, a tighter um, approach for 2020, given a number of things, given these significant risks we face and the fact that there's been slippage over the last number of years. Uh, but I think uh, sort of a, a moderate and a kind of return to, to sticking to plans uh, would be something that would be appropriate. And then I could come back here maybe in six or 12 months' time uh, and say that, yes, the minister is listening to us. All right, very good. And just finally, what people really want to know is uh, what's the scope for potential t- income tax cuts? Are they likely to have a few more bob in their pocket at the end of the day? Yeah, so the government has set out around 300 million um, of that overall package for tax cuts. Uh, now, that number can change. So there could be tax increases uh, elsewhere. So maybe there'll be uh, offsetting changes. So it's hard to know what, if we just use 300 million, mm. um, what, what impact it would have. Like, it would possibly fund a, a 1% cut in the top rate of tax. Uh, that would probably come in at around 300 million. So it wouldn't be a huge change. Um, but I'm not sure that we're in a position to be able to afford huge changes in taxes. Uh, we've seen problems before if you erode and narrow the tax base. Uh, and given the volatility and potential risk in areas like corporation tax, uh, maintaining a solid tax base would be more appropriate. OK, Seamus, we're going to take you up on that offer uh, post-Budget 2020 to bring you back in and see if uh, perhaps some of your advice has been heeded by the Minister for Finance. Uh, in the meantime, thank you for joining us. No problem. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hamilton and Seamus Coffey for joining us during the show. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed every day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.